0: All hello everyone and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So today the founder that we have, another fellow European, uh, someone that has been able to really come here to the U.S. and make a name for himself and, and he's going to teach us a lot about building and scaling companies. So I guess without further ado, Jack Smith, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So originally from the U.K. So how is life in the U.K., Jack? Uh-
1: Yep, it was good. Yeah, I was born in the centre of London and then moved to um, kind of the countryside kind of area when um, I was just uh, about 10 or 12 or so. And then I moved back to the centre of London to go to university. Um, And that's where I really started to um, get more people around me and um, start growing business more uh, when I was at university.
0: And at what point did you start to develop that love for computers and perhaps for resolving problems? Uh, Oh, well, computers and, um, kind of entrepreneurship
1: just, um, from a really young age. Um, I remember because my mom was a teacher. And so I think, I I think I was like five years old that I was just like begging her. She would basically borrow a computer from. like a massive computer had to like took up the whole car to bring it home but she would borrow it on the weekend when they weren't using it at the school and then I would use that at home um and then um doing business stuff like um basically I think I was um I'd I'd always kind of been doing businessy stuff but then when I was about 13 my parents said uh up until 13, I'd been getting pocket money, so an allowance of about um two pounds fifty a week. So like two dollars fifty a week, let's say. Yeah. Uh and then when I was like 13 or, or something around that, they said to me, Hey, uh, if you want to keep getting allowance, you've got to do more work around the house to help out. Um, so they're like, All right, here's what you gotta do. You've got to do like all the dishes and like tidy your room more and stuff like this. And then I told them, I was like, all right, I don't want to be told all this stuff that I've got to do. So why don't you just stop giving me an allowance? Stop giving me pocket money and I'll just earn my own money. And um, that was kind of the incentive for me then um being online. I started using these different sites. Like nowadays, there's sites like Upwork and stuff like this, you know. So when I was basically like 13, I would just take on like web design or graphic design or whatever projects, even if I didn't know how to do them. I was bidding like cheaper than people in India even because like my allowance until then had been $2.50. So any money was good for me. I bid just really cheap on projects and then I didn't know how to do them. I would just learn on the job. So basically I saw it that people were paying me to uh, learn how to use Photoshop and stuff. And it kind of worked fine. Um, But then I do remember one time when I think it was out Fourteen or something, uh, and I was doing a project with this client in America. And then um, I sent over the work to them at like ten PM, and then kind of went to sleep. And then um, it did the file didn't attach the email properly or something, and so like at midnight or something, they actually phoned my house, the uh, house phone in my house, and then my mum picked up, and then they were like, "Hey, can I speak to Jack?" Um, And then my mum is like. it's, it's midnight and it's a school night. He's got school tomorrow. He can't talk to you right now. And then this guy is like, uh,
0: wait, how old is he? I thought
1: we were dealing with
0: like 30 or something. (laughs) That's unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. So Uh, I guess, I guess those were probably like your, your, your first steps now into entrepreneurship and into really realizing that you could, you know, create your own destiny. No. Yeah. Yeah. And just
1: like I think from that moment, I always kind of um, I never really considered um, I've never had an actual job. I've never considered having a job because just freelancing or being an entrepreneur just showed me that I ha- I didn't have to. People weren't like telling me what to do
0: or I wasn't having a boss. So I read them a lot since early on. Got it. So then. What got you into, you know, going, I guess, to university rather than, you know, just just building a business and and keep going, you know, in the business? Because I know that you obviously did, you know, your business before university, uh, but with what which was Media Roots. But, uh, but <laughs> I guess tell us about Media Roots and then tell us about, you know, kind of like putting that on hold and going to uni. Um,
1: Well, I didn't actually put it on hold. So I started it um, before when I was in high school. And then I carried on doing it when I was at university as well. Um, Basically, I just got a tiny office, um, like just could fit maybe like three or four people. And um, I got it just up the road from my university. So basically, I was kind of full time doing my startup. Then I would run up the road, do a lecture. And then I would just run back to my office um, and then carry on working from there. Um, And, yeah, Media Roots was doing kind of like um, tutorial videos, like how to use Adobe Photoshop, how to use Microsoft Word, stuff like that.
0: Okay. So whatever happened with Media Roots? Um, I
1: mean, at its peak, it was mainly doing just like maybe... $35,000 was the most it ever kind of did a year in revenue. Um, And we were barely getting enough to kind of pay the rent on the office each time. And um, especially when I was doing my university stuff, like it didn't really um, work out that well. And um, we had just like one intern. And um, I remember there was some point where, because it was not going well, kind of just had to lay off our intern. Um, And I remember I was just like... it was kind of, uh, there was, you had your own office, but there was a shared place kind of like we work. And so I remember it was kind of 1am, uh, in the morning. And I, I just went to the kind of bathroom there and it was like pitch black. And I remember just like feeling really alone and really down and like, oh, this sucks, you know, like my business is not going anywhere kind of rock bottom. Um, but then kind of in the days after that, I kind of pulled myself together and then it was just kind of very determined like all right this is not working out but then i'm confident i can scout other opportunities and um i was not giving up at any point you know like even though i was feeling really down i'm like yeah i can still create something from
0: that got it got it so i guess just out of crazy like from from those moments when you're feeling down like that like yeah how, how do you bounce back
1: um i think like um, um, I think that it, it, I was lucky, right, that when you're kind of that kind of age, I think there is an advantage doing a startup when you're, um, let's say, like early 20s or, or something, like because I didn't have, I mean, it's not like I had a family and kids relying on me and stuff, you know, like yeah. worst case, if I um, completely couldn't pull something off, then I would just know in the back of my head that I did have the option of like going moving back in with my parents or something. So I didn't have like extreme pressures to make money really fast. But I think that actually, um, being down and stuff, um, it it gave me that kind of chip on my shoulder, you know, that I want to, that was what was driving me. I was like, everyone is not taking me seriously as an entrepreneur. Like I'm only like 21 and, um, Uh, and we were trying to raise investment at different times in London and no, everyone was kind of seeing us as kind of a joke. And so that was actually what was giving me the motivation and drive to be like, I believe in myself that, um, I have potential. And, um, so that was what was kind of driving me to just like work hard. And, um, was just my own belief that I was like, I think that I can become something. Um, people are not, necessarily believing in me right now but i was kind of just believing in myself that um not that i'm amazing or something but i was like um i I think that i can do
0: something you know so i guess you know another question here because i'm sure that there's people right now that are dealing with rejection and obviously dealing with rejection you know once you get used to it you know it's okay you know because once you've done it a couple of times it is just part of the game but i guess how do you believe in yourself when others are not believing in you
1: yeah. I mean, um, it is tough, right? Like, um, in London we did at one point, we, um, we had this one VC, um, who, um, well, I guess actually multiple, um, venture capitalists, but, uh, there was one venture capital firm where we met the kind of principals, uh, so kind of more of the junior people. We met them about four times or so. And then they were like, Hey, you know, what you're doing is kind of interesting. Um, This is our, this is when we had started to work on Vungle as the idea very early on. And they were like, Hey, it's kind of interesting what you're doing. We want you to come in to meet, um, with one of the partners at the firm. And so we were like really excited. And, um, we went by there like at like five o'clock or something. And basically, like, um, maybe 10 to 15 I, it could have been in the closer to 10 minutes into the meeting. Um, the guy basically was like, okay, yeah, this is cool. Well, um, I've got to leave now. So, uh, yeah, I'll just catch you later. Like basically he just like walked out of the meeting after like 10 minutes. Wow. And, um, yeah. And so that actually, again, just gave us the a motivation and drive. Like, Hey, all these people just, um, rejecting us or treating us, badly or whatever like um it just, just just made us more and more determined to um to just like maybe prove people wrong or um yeah i'd say like proving people wrong was one bit i'm not gonna say proving people wrong some people do believe in you you know it's just like getting that first break um can be hard. Like, I won't say that everyone was not believing in us. Like we did get some rejections, but people were like supporting us with advice and stuff, but just getting that first kind of um, bit of cash and uh, investment or whatever was the, um, the main thing that we had to work a long time for.
0: Got it. And, you know, obviously in your case, you know, like you were doing media routes at the same time you were in King's college. And then we were talking about Vango, which is your, your next uh, rodeo. So so yeah. after King's College, you go and, and you know, Media Roots eventually evolved into, into Bungle. But can you yeah. really walk us through, like, what was the incubation process of Bungle and how you brought it to life?
1: Yeah. So basically, um, as I said, like the Media Roots stuff, it was basically doing videos for your um, laptop or whatever, like how to use Photoshop and stuff. And then basically around that time, so this was like um, something like, uh 2010 2011 um that like very the start of 2011 like january or something and basically at that time the iphone app store was only like 18 months old like they'd only started having apps it's hard to believe right it's pretty crazy but the iphone launched without apps the iphone just launched with like um a browser and a mail and then and then um they launched basically the ability to have apps and so I was just like reading online about these different articles. I think there was like Gartner reports and stuff, you know, saying like, hey, this emerging trend, like mobile apps is gonna be exploding. Um and then so I was kind of thinking like, hey, wait a minute, we're doing these videos on um the desktop, like why don't we start doing some videos on the uh, for like iPhone apps, you know? Right. And um my co-founder at the time was like, dude, this is like a waste of time because at that like nowadays, right, you can just um swipe from the top and click record and you can record your screen on an iphone you know it's very easy at that time you couldn't actually record the screen on an iphone um so what i had to do is i had to come up with basically a hack so my co-founder was like hey it's a waste of time but i was like let's just give it a shot so basically i bought some like different equipment and kind of by hacking together different stuff it was kind of like a um a DVR recorder that you normally used to record your TV combined with this other cable, combined with this other cable. I managed to find this kind of hacky way that you could record the screen of your iPhone. And it's kind of had this breakthrough bit that, okay, we can record the uh, mobile apps. And then just to get started, we started charging companies to um, make videos for them. So, like, we made some um, instructional videos for, like, how to use the uh, Spotify iphone app and stuff like that right yeah. and so that's how media roots evolved into Vungle. and then as i as i mentioned to you we were trying to raise like funding to to get it off the ground uh, our idea was actually pretty terrible the um idea we had for Vungle initially it was basically like what if we could build um an app store um which every app had a video um but so it was a pretty terrible idea but at least it put us in this market of um Mobile apps market, and then basically we were we didn't really have any money. We were just doing a couple of making a couple of videos of people made a few thousand dollars to get by, and then one day um, I was just reading TechCrunch, and um, there I saw this article, and it said there's this um, incubator in San Francisco, so it's called AngelPad, so it's a bit similar to Y Combinator, right? That everyone kind of knows about. And it said um hey this incubator new incubator, Angel pad, and they're giving every company that joins a hundred thousand dollars and um or, or 120 thousand I can't remember And they're basically like, hey and they've reserved one spot for um TechCrunch readers. So click here to apply um And I said to my co-founder like hey man, look what we're doing with no money we should apply to this um, And he was like, oh, I don't know because, um, they were tweeting like, oh, we just got 2,000 applications in the last 24 hours. So he was like, look, there's no point in applying. Like, we'll never stand out from the crowd. Um, and I was like, just give it a shot. Like, what's the worst that can happen, you know? Yep. Um, and basically, I'd found this hack on LinkedIn. I, I'd never really used it for anything before. But I'd found this hack where I was able... LinkedIn at the time had just launched something a bit like Google AdWords. like Everyone knows Google Ads, Facebook Ads, right? LinkedIn had launched LinkedIn Ads. And you could target, like you create an ad, and then when you're doing the targeting, you can be really specific. You can say, like, I want to target a person that works at this company. So let's say Google. And then you can say job title. Um, So I did, like, I tried to create an ad targeting founder of AngelPad, right yeah. um and so it told me on the right hand side of the screen it was like this ad will target it tells you how many ads uh, people your ads will target and it told me this ad will target one person so i tried to submit it and then as you might expect it said like this is not targeting enough people you need to target more more people for your ad right. uh, you can't run an ad just targeting one person but i was like thinking like all right well wait a minute well what is the limit then? So then I just added one more person. So I said CEO of AngelPad or CEO of Google. And I tried to submit it. And then again, it's like, you know, you're not targeting enough people. And so basically I just kept adding one. So that number on the right kept on going up. I tried, um, let's say it's targeted five people. I submit it and it's like, no. And so I have one more and basically i think it must have been because it was kind of a new platform maybe human error or something yeah but basically when i targeted seven people it let me submit it wow so i kind of saw at that point i was like okay well now i can target anyone because what i did is i could target let's say ceo of angelpad and then i put in six random people who i don't care if they see the ad like maybe they don't even speak english like maybe like a janitor at bank of china so armed with this basically so this was thursday right i saw this TechCrunch post saying there's one spot left that day just only spent like max two hours i'd say created a, a one page landing page and recorded a video of me and my co-founder talking directly into our phones and we wow. said like hey the founder is tomas so he we was like hey tomas seeing your background." Um, you're a legend, would love to talk to you. This is my phone number. Give me a call. Um, and basically put a button saying, click here to email this to Mars. And then basically set up an ad campaign targeting um, all his friends and colleagues on LinkedIn. Wow. And um, he was in America, right? So a different time zone. Uh, and so we just went to sleep. Like, I just did it just like, hey, might as well give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Went to sleep. Come back to the office the next day, and I've got an email from Tomas. So this one-line email, he says, "Hey, um, I've seen your ads. Um, what's your phone number? Let's chat." So, hello. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> he gives me a call, and he's like, "Hey, is that Jack?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "All right, it's Tomas. We can chat." But first of all, take down this ad now. <laughs> he's like, ev- <laughs> he's like "Everyone so nice. is calling me about this," <laughs> um, and then. <laughs> Uh so then basically this was the so I saw the ad on Thursday, Friday we had this call, and um basically there was about uh 15 teams at AngelPad, right? All the other teams were amazing engineers. Like um one people, one guy wrote YouTube's API. This other teams were like PhDs in video encoding. Right. Me and my co-founder we're not engineers. But what we said to Tomas is we told him, like, hey, listen, you've got 14 teams. They're all really safe bets. Like, sure, they're great engineers and stuff, but they're pretty safe, you know? And we were like, hey, why don't you just bet on us as a wild card? It might blow up really badly, or we might give you something different to the mix, you know? And so we did two calls in the next week, and basically exactly a week after seeing the ad, he said, hey, guys, let's do a final Skype video call. I've made my decision. Did the call uh, and we were like, hey, do you have to reject us on video? We've got our, like, two interns here. And he's like, no, we have to do this. <laughs> and he's like, all right, guys, listen. Um, we've had, um, he's like, um, well, first of all, he's like, all right, guys, I've decided to um, take a risk. You guys have got the last spot. And so we're like, high-fiving around the office. And he's like, "But listen, we've invested in teams who are abroad before. And, um, our investors don't like it when they like go back to their home country after the program finishes and Japan is 12 weeks. So it's like, if you're going to do this, you need to move to America permanently. And, um, my co-founder and I, we didn't even need to look at each other. We didn't even need to speak. Like we just like immediately were like, yeah, that's no problem. Yeah. Because we wanted this break so badly. And it's like, okay, then, well, the program starts on Monday. So just get the first flight out here. Um, and that is basically our big break we got the hundred and twenty thousand dollars from that um and now having the first person that believed in us that really spurred us on and coming out to america we came on a three-month tourist visa and i think that time pressure that all right we need to pull all this off in three months um that is what caused us to be able to move really fast
0: Wow. Well, shout out as well to Thomas court. You know, he's been on yeah, the show and, yeah, sure. and he, he's really oh, he fantastic. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So he's, he's really oh, fantastic. That's so, great. so I guess the, um, I want to ask you here then, uh, Angel pad, what, what was that experience yeah. for you guys? Like what was the before and what was the after?
1: Yeah. Well, the first day they make you turn up and pitch to all of the other people, all of the other teams. Right. And so all of the other teams are pitching and we were just like, wow, these guys are amazing. And then we pitched our idea and, um, could kind of see looking around the audience because we were kind of actually thinking of doing an Android App Sort to start. And then pitching and I'm seeing everyone with an iPhone. And it's like this idea we kind of gathered that our idea was terrible. And so then basically we were like, "Oh, right, we've got three months to one, we needed to get an engineer, like a CTO, because me and my co-founder, we were not engineers. And then two, we kind of needed to come up with a new business idea. Because our idea kind of sucked. And then yeah. three, we wanted to raise some funding. Um, because otherwise we told all these people in England, we're like, hey, you rejected us, but now we're moving to America. So kind of like we didn't say fuck you, but we were kind of saying like, <laughs> <"Okay>, fuck you. <laughs> and then because we thought, oh, we'll just move to America and then we're millionaires. And then I arrived there and then I'm like, oh shit, this is actually hard work, even now here. And so right. we're like, we need to pull this off, otherwise we're gonna look like idiots going back to England. <laughs> Yeah. So the main thing that Tomas told us, he taught us the main thing that I learned, right? And um it, it's actually um there's a book that kind of says the same thing. The book is called the Mum Test, M-O-M test. And basically what Tomas told us is about customer development. So he taught everyone, he told everyone like, Hey, listen, I, what what I want you to do is I want you to phone like 20 of your potential customers and don't try and sell them your current idea. I like don't pitch them your current idea. Instead, just chat to them and ask them, what is your biggest challenge in your working life or whatever? And so we were doing stuff for app developers, right? So we called app developers, and they told us, hey, we're engineers. We know how to build an app, but we don't know how to get users. So that's what we're struggling with. And so then we had our pain point. We're like, all right. What can we do to help these app developers get users? Now, I told you early on, right, that every other team in AngelPad was an, was an engineer apart from us. Okay. We thought that was a massive disadvantage. It actually turned out to be an advantage in some ways because engineers um, sometimes, it's a stereotype, right, but sometimes they can be quite um introverted and not want to speak to customers and stuff right so one of these other teams there was like three of them all like amazing engineers phds in video uh, like video encoding and stuff but they basically spent the entire 12 weeks just coding what they thought was going to be a good product and then after 12 weeks they launched it and then no one wanted it yeah but me and my co-founder we we were not engineers so what we did is we actually tried out six different business ideas in the space of about two weeks. Um, we just created a fake landing page for each idea, and then we went and we actually just try and sell, We tried to sell. We tried to get customers. So we made it look like it was already ready. So we had like one idea where we were like, "Hey, we can help you get your app onto uh, a blogs like or app review websites." And people told us, like app developers told us, like, oh, this is an amazing idea. And we were, we told them, like, hey, we'll charge $200 normally. We'll give it to you for $20. And people said, like, oh, yeah, that's great. I'll sign up as soon as I get home. We got zero sales. Wow. Because people were just telling us that, oh, it's a great idea, just so they wanted us to go away.
0: And how were you, you know? getting these people, Jack? How were you getting these people to go to that landing page? Um, we actually
1: weren't necessarily... Um, online getting people to go to it what we did is we went to like uh meetups and conferences and we showed people the landing page and they were like oh yeah yeah when i get home i'll sign up like we're getting business cards and stuff um but we realized that you know if they're not if no one is willing to sign up when we're doing it for like 20 dollars it's not a good idea right so we quickly kept on killing the ideas and then our sixth idea we came up with is what fungal is today. We basically, I'd seen some video ads on my phone, but they were like for AT&T and Verizon and stuff. But I was thinking like, hey, what if you could have a video ad advertising other apps and other games? So we said to app developers like, hey, listen, what if you could have a video showing what your app does, kind of like a movie trailer, like 15 seconds, and show it inside of other games? At the time, the only other option were kind of banner ads. And so videos like this, then people were like, oh, this is awesome. So they were like, hey, listen, when you launch, I want to be your first customer. Like, put me down for like $5,000, $10,000. And so we knew we had the right idea, this sixth idea. We knew this was the right idea because then people were kind of throwing money at us, you know. Before we couldn't get a single sale, whereas this one, people were like, I want to be your first customer. And so that's when we knew we kind of had like product market fit.
0: Wow. Very, very cool. So then once you had that type of validation, how did you go about, yeah. let's say, because here you the, the beauty is what you were saying. You guys were building based on data rather than building yeah. on assumptions like all the other engineers yeah. were doing. So I guess once yeah. you you knew you had the winner, how did you go about yeah. you know the execution?
1: So basically the other thing is um, I speak to many entrepreneurs many of the time, right? And they're like, hey, I don't have a CTO, so I'm helpless. And they just... They feel like, oh, I'm so unlucky. Um, I can't do anything at all until I get a CTO. And um they're, and they're just treating it like um feeling sorry for themselves, right? Yeah. But the thing is that if you're doing that, why would a CTO want to join you? You're not offering anything. If you're just like, oh, feel sorry for me, join my company. That's not appealing, <laughs> right? So for us. What happened is because we got these um, pre-orders coming in, it made us look pretty attractive, right? Like, oh, wow, these guys are closing deals. So we, what we had is we had this engineer, and uh, he was just working. He had a job. He had a day job. Um, but he was just helping us out in the evenings. He'd come by for like two hours in the evening. And then basically what we did is going through AngelPad, we got some um, of our friends. We told them, like, hey, listen, can you just uh have a have a word with our engineer guy and just like hype us up a bit and so we said to our engineer like hey why don't you just go down and help those guys carry some food from like it was just a happy hour so we were like hey help them carry the beer upstairs and so he went to help them and then we got them our friends basically told him like hey man uh you know jack and zane like this bungle is kind of taking off like you should join full time because they're probably going to raise a lot of funding soon and um it, it will it might get too late. You should join them whilst it's early. And then so that kind of planted the seed in his head. And then um we what happened is I actually hit up I found this guy who'd founded a mobile advertising company before and he'd exited it. Um, it guys called Lee Linden. Yeah. And um I just sent him a cold message actually by LinkedIn and I was like hey um gee you know you've had an exit in this space uh, would love to just uh, get your feedback about what we're working on. I genuinely wanted advice, and then found out this is what's great about San Francisco. His office was actually just around the around the corner. Right? It was like two blocks away, and so he was like, "Hey, yeah, just come by." We met up with him, just chatting, and then he got really excited. And then he's like, "Hey, um, I'd actually be interested in like angel investing if you're interested." And we were like, "Oh yeah, definitely interested," you know. And then so basically, we were starting to get this traction with investors and stuff. And so, our uh, the, the engineer guy, um, because we were starting to get meetings with like VCs as well, like Angelpad, they introduced us to some venture capitalists, like Google Ventures and stuff. Yeah. And, uh, me and my co-founder couldn't drive. And so we got this engineer to give us a ride to the, uh, Google Ventures thing. And, um, just, he just sat in the car, car parking lot outside, you know, while we had the meeting. And then, um, because it was like starting to get its traction, then he, he ended up joining full time as our CTO, you know, because he was feeling like, oh, these guys are closing deals, you know, they're getting some investment. Like this is hot. I should join, you know? Wow. Um, yeah. And so basically managed to do that and then, uh, had this meeting with Google Ventures. And then actually, um, the meeting went pretty terrible, to be honest, because, uh, it was our first ever kind of VC meeting. We didn't really know what we're doing. And, um, kind of was finishing off the pitch deck in the car on the ride down and then doing the pitch. And then there was like spelling mistakes in the pitch and stuff. It was pretty terrible. And so basically the partner was just like, he was trying, he was, he didn't want to reject us outright, but he was kind of framing it like, Hey guys, um, I just wanted to help you design your pitch deck. So I hope this meeting was useful. You know, um, like see you later basically so he was basically kicking us out but then as we were (laughs) walking because our pitch was terrible but um as we were walking out he was just like hey by the way like um how's the fundraising going and um we just kind of bluffed a bit to be honest like we were just like oh yeah it's going really good like we just closed this um angel investor, which is true. We said they're Lee Linden. We did we said, like, just close this, like, top industry investor. Can't tell you his name, but you'll definitely have heard of this guy. Um, and then now we're just starting to talk to different PCs and, like, just deciding who will, um, who will be the best fit to lead our round. Thanks so much for, like, helping us. And it kind of made him a bit paranoid, I guess. And so basically he actually just, like, out of his briefcase or something, he just pulled out some, like, papers and then just, like, put it on the table. And he's like, uh, all right, here's the deal. This is a term sheet. Google Ventures is going to lead you round. They were only putting in $100,000, but um, still, it's like, we're going to lead the round. Don't try and negotiate with us uh, and don't announce this to after demo day, but we're going to lead the round. This dude over here is going to like do the paperwork. And so we're like, oh, what the hell? Like, wow. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> yeah. So then basically we went into the demo day and then we were able to say like, hey, we're Jack and Zane. In the last 12 three. In the last 12 weeks, we came up with this business idea. We've we've got, like, $35,000 in, like, pipeline of sales of people wanting to do uh, deals with us. Um, This is our CTO. He just joined full-time previously at some, like, big tech companies. And then we're raising a funding round, and it's being led by a top-tier VC. We can't say who it is, but it's top-tier VC. So, basically, we pulled off all this stuff in 12 weeks. I think because we were scared of going back to England as failures, you know? So just that time pressure. And then so uh, in the weeks after Demo Day, we closed out. Uh, We were initially thinking to raise 500k, ended up raising 2 million as the seed round. That's amazing. And then with that money, started to build out the platform and things started to take off. And then
0: I think about, yeah. At this point, like, how were you guys making money? How was was Vungle making money? Uh, we, we had like no
1: money. The, the, we only money we had was the $120,000 from AngelPad. And, um, we had done like these deals to make a video for Spotify, but that was like a thousand dollars deal, you know? So we yeah. didn't really have any revenue, but what we said is here's a pipeline of app developers that want to work for us once we launch, you know? Got it. Um, so it was kind of a pipeline validation.
0: So how did you go then about building the
1: team? scaling up the team
0: yeah so with the
1: two million then um we hired out like um one additional engineer um and started to build out like sales team um but actually what we did is we we started off right we hired this is a mistake we made we hired really senior people we hired um from some of our competitors we hired like some of the vice presidents of sales from our competitors And we're like, oh, wow, this person must be awesome. They were like VP, our competitor, whatever. But actually, it didn't work out because um, these guys that were used to working at a big company, they've got a massive support team around them, you know? Like maybe they've got an assistant or someone helping them. So basically, they had connections, but they were all too big. Like we were some tiny company. We weren't ready to work with them yet. So actually, we actually had to fire, let go of um, the first three people, the senior people that we hired on the sales people, and then actually what we did is we hu- we ended up replacing them just with really junior people. Some of the best people, and some of them still work at Vungle today, like um, seven years um, or so later, uh, maybe eight years or so ago. Some of these people, this was their first job out of college. Yeah. I hired them off trade list. Now, it sounds crazy, but here's the thing. Whereas those original, uh, really senior people, they were good in a big company, but they weren't good at, like, solo go-getters. These guys out of college were super hungry. And so basically, they did all of the work, you know. They were able to tell people they cold emailed and cold called app developers because they were not scared of getting rejected. And they would basically play the mobile games on their phone on the way to work, And so what they do is they call an app developer or email them, cold email, and they'd say, like, hey, I was playing your game on the bus to work this morning. Um, Just some feedback um, about level three. Have you thought about doing this? Whatever. Um, By the way, I'm working at this company, Vungle. Would love to chat to you about it. So actually, that worked way better, having these young, hungry um, kids reaching out because the app developers felt like, oh, well, this is actually someone who's playing my game. This is not like some sales guy in a suit. Uh, this person actually is in a fan, you know. And so um, that is how we've got this first deal. It was just like cold calling, cold emailing, going to conferences. But it was basically with a bunch of young, hungry kids hired off Craigslist. And some of them we actually brought over from Europe. Brought over um, some, uh, at least two people, three people we brought over from London. And we got a house a really cheap house in a really rough area in Oakland, West Oakland. And um, we basically told these guys, hey, we can't pay you much salary, a like, tiny salary, but we'll give you a place to live and you get to work in Silicon Valley,
0: you know? Wow, I love it. And then and then mm-hmm. you guys raised quite a bit of money for the business. How much money did you guys raise prior to the acquisition?
1: Well, actually, not that much in the grand scheme of things because, you know, nowadays, like... Um, companies that get quiet they're raising hundreds of millions or like uh, billions of dollars you know often before ipoing so actually the company only raised about 25 million um in total so that was the seed which was like 2 million series a um which was about 6.5 and then the series b which was 17 so not huge amounts by today's standard
0: and especially compared to the price of the yeah. acquisition i mean in the yeah. in the press was reported that it was like yeah. over 750 million so definitely yeah. more than a 10x that the VCs yeah. typically invest
1: yeah yeah i think um we were really happy that like some of the um first guys to have backed us like angel pad for tomas this will be a ma- um, i don't know how many multiples but uh the angel guys at least got like um kind of 100x or something exit wow. you know
0: that's really amazing so hopefully this uh, uh, Lee Linden, you know, person uh, yeah. invited you for a dinner, you know, after the, yeah. the acquisition yeah. was announced. But uh, yeah, but anyhow. So, so Jack, so you actually left Bungo right at the Series B. Why? Why yeah. you leave? Um,
1: lots of different reasons, like um, uh, th- yeah, lots of different reasons coming up. I'd say one of the core reasons, right, is well, one of them was that I was pretty burned out, like had kind of moving to america and doing this angel pad, i was like sleeping in the office um working on weekends like crazy like i was i was very burned out basically i hadn't taken any holiday or time off and basically what i saw is um as i look back on it right like things are different in the moment but as i look back i did not scale myself as fast as my co-founder so basically, when you're starting a company and there's two of you, you got to do everything, right? Like, I was the accountant, I was the marketing team, I was the product team, I was the recruiter. Like, I'm doing all these jobs, right? And then as you scale, you need to fire yourself from each job and hire people and you need to trust them, basically. And basically, I didn't do that well enough. Like, things were moving crazy fast and I was not like, evolving my job to delegate i was not i didn't move from doing to dele- delegating i was still micromanaging and that meant that like i was being burning myself out and i was also slowing down everyone around me because like if we were to buy a printer for 30 dollars I was insisting that I had to write off the check on it, you know, because I was so, because we'd always operated with no money, I just didn't want to waste the money that we had. But so basically I was like not scaling. And then our our venture capital guy, um, I I had been leading product and marketing stuff. And then towards the end I was leading product. And our, our main VC was like, oh, you should hire someone really experienced from Microsoft to lead product and then i was like all right but then what shall i do as a job and they're like oh you should be like the product visionary and i'm like that's not a job what are you talking about <laughs> like um so basically what i should have done right this is with hindsight right like what i should have done if anyone else is in this position about you know you've started the company and you've built it to some point and you don't know what is the best role for you moving forward what i should have done is i should have taken two weeks off I said, I said, like, all right, I'll go on holiday for two weeks. And I should have spoken to other companies um, and asked them, how did you handle the transition? I didn't do that. So basically, I couldn't really, at the time, I was like, I can't see a role for me in the company. I can't see what I should do. And we've hired a really good team and the company's a good place. So I kind of felt like I should leave. If I now, after I left, now I can look at other companies. I can see that every company, there's not a set role every company does it differently um lyft you know the famous ride sharing company lyft one of them is ceo and the other co-founder is president and they kind of divide up responsibilities like that um this other company color genomics they've raised like um think almost 100 million or something nowadays one of the guys started as ceo and then he transitioned to like chairman You know, there's lots of different roles that you can have and different structures. I just didn't take the time to research enough. Like I spoke to my VCs, but I should have spoken to other entrepreneurs who had built a company to a big scale. Um, uh, So that's the main uh, thing that I didn't do that I wish I had done.
0: Got it. So what happened next? I believe you went and, and, and what happened?
1: Yeah, basically, again, I was kind of burned out, right? So I was thinking, like, all right, I should take some time off. But it still kind of had the entrepreneurship kind of gene. So less than two weeks after I left, um, I had a ma- I saw these two guys, and they were at idea stage um, with this company called SIP. Um, that was kind of – it's kind of like Uber for shipping. Um, and they hadn't raised any money, and they were just struggling to get it off the ground. And um, – I met up with them. I, I kind of messaged them. I was like, hey, this looks like a cool idea. Let me know if you want help with your pitch deck or whatever, right? Yeah. And so I met up with the guys for coffee, and then we just got on really well. And basically, he invited his other co-founder down, and it turned into like six-hour meeting. Like, we went for dinner and stuff. And then basically, a few days after, they asked me, they're like, hey, do you – instead of just um, – I would have been better as an advisor, really. But they were like, hey, do you want to join us as a co-founder? I think because they couldn't raise any money and they saw like, hey, this guy just raised 25 million for his last startup. Um, he he should join as a co-founder, you know. But when you're moving really fast like that, like I'd only just met them, right, that's not a good basis to be a co-founder, you know. So I, I helped them raise the C round and stuff for their business. But then quickly after that, we kind of found out that we had like different values and stuff and they had known each other for many years they had worked together they actually lived together so i was kind of the third wheel you know um i I think they also thought like oh shit we just gave this guy like a massive amount of equity to be a co-founder um i bet we could have raised funding without him you know like why why did we give him so much equity we shouldn't have done that type thing you know um you Always over, you, you it's easy to give out equity when your company hasn't raised any money, right? Because it's it's worthless. Like, yeah. oh, here's like 30% equity, that's not worth anything. Then you raise funding, and now there's a dollar amount, right? And now you're viewing it like, oh shit, we just gave this like three million dollars <laughs> yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah, yeah. So, um, it helped them raise the seed round and stuff, but like, uh, just only a few months after that, like, we just kind of parted ways because, um, I was just like a third wheel there.
0: So um, they you- ended up what, what did you learn there uh, about you know choosing co-founders or finding co-founders
1: yeah i think just i um i, I wanted to just uh, it, it was an awesome uh, i thought it was an awesome idea and liked the industry and stuff but then um i jumped into it too fast i would have been better as an advisor or something the the best kind of co-founder relationship for me is one where you kind of stress tested it you know how is this friendship or relationship when things are going good how is it when your thing's going bad? And the other bit is you've got to be aligned on values. Okay. So this is not to discredit the other fact The two other guys, they um, were really good entrepreneurs and stuff, but they just had different um, values around things like money to me because I, had always kind of as I said made my own money and being very tight about money, I never want to waste it or something and but these guys maybe just had a different outlook, so basically, after we raised the seed round, the first thing they wanted to do was like um they wanted to they're like let's go to Vegas and celebrate you know, and then when we got the seed money, the first thing they wanted to spend it on was like an interior designer, and for me, these things kind of stressed me out a lot, you know because I'm like. Why the hell are we hiring an interior designer? Like I'm used to running a company from like the worst office possible. Like I don't want to spend money on furniture, you know? So then values around things like that, it can be very stressful. Um, It's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just like, if one of you is really scrappy, that's not the only way to do business. And if you're not like aligned on that, then you can kind of butt heads, you know, like, because I was kind of of the view, like, hey, we don't need to buy, like, expensive monitors and computers and stuff. Like, at, my, at Vungle, we um, just uh, portfolio companies that were going bankrupt, we just turned up and got their free equipment, you know. Yeah. It's just a different way of doing business. So, I think the main thing is um, with co-founder relationships, not to jump into anything. You can maybe work together, see how you get on. And the other bit is testing, like, how do your values align, especially when it comes to money. Got it,
0: got it. And obviously, ship, uh, you know, raised a pretty significant a amount of yeah. money, like sixty-two yeah. million, like from like yeah. top-tier uh, businesses. Yeah. Uh, they were like a, basically like a shipping services that ranges yeah. from pick up the package to delivery yeah. to the destination. But I guess yeah. what what went wrong there? Like what, what yeah. did you learn from that experience? That perhaps now you know, if you were to start another business or when you see other yeah. founders, probably like something that you really learned there. So ship was kind of pers- look- It was kind of like Uber. For sipping,
1: right like it is an app you open it you press a button and someone comes and picks up your stuff it's like it was like uber um the the investors in the business um were uber investors right the guy who led the series b um they had led uber series b and um kleiner perkins had also invested in uber so they were kind of viewing it like oh Uber is like one of our best companies. Uber is doing amazing. Um, and then this company is similar to Uber. So we should invest in it. Right. So, but that I think the main thing is Uber is an edge case company. Like I use Uber maybe like four times a day. Right. You use it really often. But then this VC in particular, they invested in Ship, which was like um, Uber for shipping. They also invested in Munchery, which was like Uber for food. And they also invested in like, um, some laundry company that was Uber for laundry. All of those kind of went out of business. And I think it's because the main thing overlooked was that nothing else there has the same frequency of use as Uber. You're not doing your laundry four times a day, right? And you're not sipping a package. The average person doesn't ship a package four times a day and, um, they're not eating four times a day. Maybe like, one to three times and so it was the frequency of use so it was basically we were trying to like make ourselves look too much like this other company or like thinking that things that worked for uber would work for us whilst overlooking some of the core factors that that made uber successful you know um and so one of the bits is that you know entrepreneurs like maybe some of your listeners are maybe getting their company started and maybe they haven't raised funding right and they look at like. They would have looked at SIP as being like, why do these guys get to raise $60 million? Uh, No one's giving me money, whatever, you know. But here's the thing, like, investors aren't always right. Even the best investors like Kleiner Perkins, Sequoia, they've got some massive wins. Actually, SIP was led by John Dore. He He was the same investor that did Amazon. He's on the board of Google. But the thing is, like, even these guys who have had winners like Uber and Amazon or, or Google They're not right every time, right? And um, sometimes the hottest deal companies are not actually the companies that succeed in the long term. So even if you getting a load of money doesn't make you successful and it doesn't make you um, a good company, some very good companies might just always be bootstrapped. Maybe they get rejected by every VC but then maybe that makes them more determined that they're going to make it, and then maybe they might have a better outcome if you don't raise money, right? That's an alternative nowadays. Many people are thinking, "Why do I even need money?" And so I think that's one thing is Silicon Valley hypes up; it's too gl- gl- it's glamified to raise funding. They're like, you meet someone and they're like, "Oh, how much funding have you raised?" But actually, the company who's raised no money might
0: be a better business, you know. So yeah. I think that's kind of a trend that's changing. And I think that you know, like people don't really get it right i mean when when yeah. you're asking people about success they tell you about the yeah. raise they tell you about yeah. the amount of employees but but you exactly. know exactly. i'm thinking like no, for me success is revenue per employee yeah yeah so,
1: or, or or if you're a sole founder um and you're making a million dollars a year that's um, there's a difference as well between revenue and profit right like some of these companies are not profitable whether if you're making a profitable business that's bootstrapped that is just as glamorous as a company raising sixty million. That's not profitable.
0: Yeah, right? there you go. Probably Especially better. because when when you give up all the equity, then you're gonna yeah. probably if you're bootstrapping and you do let's say like a ten million or a twenty million dollar sale, you're probably gonna yeah. get the same you know proceeds than if the company is sold for like two hundred or three hundred. If you've raised a uh, you know a pretty substantial money,
1: probably more, dude. Because you know sometimes yeah. what people don't realize is, let's say like SIP, right? raised 60 million but the peak valuation was 275 million right right so that meant that sip couldn't sell for less than that because if they sold for like 100 million then like all of the money would have gone to the investors so like sip could have maybe if it hadn't raised any money maybe it could have sold for 100 million or something being an awesome outcome for employees and and the founders but because it raised so much money that meant it kind of had to sell for maybe close to a billion to get the same
0: outcome. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, I totally, totally get that. Now, one of the things that you did here, uh, you know, you were talking about being right and, you know, being able to succeed as an investor, being able to also make mistakes as an investor. And then after the experience of ship, you were an advisor to companies, obviously yeah. now, you know, investing and, you know, from yeah. the proceeds of, uh, of, of Bungo, you know, probably yeah. now you have more, more, more money to deploy than ever. So I guess sure. now, now when, when you are uh, looking at companies and, you know, yeah. one thing that I've seen is that you're very creative. You, you seem to be like a Swiss army knife, you know, coming up with all these unbelievable ideas of how to target <laughs> people and all of these things, no? but I guess sure. like to optimize your chances of succeeding and picking winners. What, what mm. are, what are some of the things that you do in order to really optimize for being right? So here's the thing as well, though, something I had to
1: learn is um, as on the investor side, right, uh, I got this advice from some other people um, who said like, hey, if you speak to an investor and they say that, hey, every company I've I've invested in has been an amazing winner, then you're like, probably that investor actually hasn't made enough investments because that's impossible to never have a lot. I told you. Uh, John Doerr is, like, looked as, like, the best, one of the best investors of all time. And he still has uh, failures. So in order to get the best wins, um, if you've never had a loss, maybe you're not taking enough risk. You, most VC funds, right, you get one company that is amazing success and runaway success. And it doesn't matter if all your other companies fail. You You only need to be right once. Okay. And then, but just don't be wrong too many times. And the time that you, and the time that you are right, you need to own, you need to go into that with enough conviction, right? You know, you can't invest like a hundred dollars in like every single company you meet, because then if you even, if you get an Uber, it's not going to return you much. So you need to, um, have conviction in yourself, but you can't be paralyzed about being scared of failure.
0: Got it. And I guess one of the um, one of the questions and, you know, you were talking about Uber. I mean, Uber, for example, yeah. for uh this 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 VC, let me see if I if I remember a uh, first round. So first round, yeah. for example, I think they invested like the seed money on, on yeah. Uber, like five hundred thousand. I think that at yeah. the time of IPO, it was something crazy like seven billion worth. Yeah. Investment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. what a what a way to be right. So one of the questions sure. that, that I typically have for the guests that come on the show is, yeah, if you had the opportunity, Jack, you know, knowing what you know now, I mean, you've seen it all companies that did well, yeah. companies that didn't do so well. What would you tell your younger self? Let's say if you could go back in time to, yeah. to that moment of of launching, let's say media roots or maybe Bungo, which was like the, the, the big, you know, break, what would you tell your younger self? You know, what would be that one piece, one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self before launching Mm -hmm. a business and why? Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't give myself too much advice actually, because I think
1: that there is advantages of being um, naive. And I think because um, if you know too much, it gives you reasons not to start a company, Right. Because you think of all the reasons it could fail. So there is advantage just to be naive. But the one piece of feedback I give is actually feedback from um, this famous investor, Mark Andreessen. And he says that when people look at a company, there's kind of maybe like, if they're judging, will this company be a big success, like billion dollar company? There's different ways you could look at it. You could judge the team. Like this is during the seed round, right? You could be like, am I going to judge it on the team? Am I going to judge it on the product that they've built? Or am I going to judge it on the market? Now, he says the most important factor, and I, from my experience, would agree with this, is the most important factor in building a billion-dollar whatever company is the market. Because if you launch a company in a tiny market that's not growing, let's say umbrellas for dogs or whatever, yeah. Even if you build the market leader company, if that market is like a $500,000 market, that means even if you build the market leader, you're still capped at $500,000. What we did right with Vungle is we entered by luck a massively exploding market, mobile apps. Mobile apps are making tens of billions of dollars in revenue, and it's growing at crazy. If you start a company in a massive market, even if you don't build the number one company, Vungle is not the number one mobile advertising company. Vungle is maybe the number two, number three mobile advertising company. A company started after Vungle a year later is a lot bigger than Vungle. So this is the thing. If you choose a massive market, you don't have to be the first mover. You don't have to be the number one winner. You could be the number five biggest company and you could still build a $100 million company. So that would be the advice I give myself or anyone else thinking I starting a company is you do your research about how big is the market you're entering and is it growing? There's things like Gartner, there's different market research reports you can be reading about the market size, you know. They ask you it on Shark Tank and stuff, right? Like, what's the market size for this? That is the most important factor, in my opinion.
0: For sure. I mean, Google, for example, was the 88th yeah. or something like that to market. So um, yeah. I think that that's a very profound what you're saying, Jack. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi, Jack?
1: Um, maybe via Twitter or um yeah, Twitter or email. Um definitely your listeners happy to be helpful to them if there's any bits they want to buy Son, my email address is just um Jack Smith one as in the number one at gmail.com um or on Twitter. If you just type in on Google like Jack Smith Fungal, whatever, then it should come up.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the deal maker show today, cool. Jack. Thanks for having me, man. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com